Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader, on which we are discussing, well, I guess for the last time, Thomas Hardy's Test of the Durbervilles. Karen is our, is our very special guest for this series. And before we get into your questions about this book, I just want to say, Karen, thank you so much for spending the last two months or so getting together with us and talking about this book and even engaging on the Facebook page. So I just want to say how much of an honor it is to have you joining us because we know you're very busy and you are currently in your summer vacation uh, <laughs> and you're still willing to do this. So thank you. Well, it's been a joy and pleasure and you all help pick out the cover and even the selections. <laughs> so I feel like this was, you know, meant to be. So thank you. It's a duty thing was what you're saying. Duty and desire. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm just really sad to be done talking to Karen for a while. Well, we, we you know, Karen has other titles in this series. So maybe next year we'll have to just have her on and talk about the Scarlet Letter or something, um, which is a book we've never done on the show and probably should at some point. So, well, we are here to answer your questions about Test of the Durbervilles, and we have quite a few. So we're just going to dive right in. As always, with a Q&A, it can be a little bit abrupt when we switch from one question to the next. So sometimes we'll get into a conversation and it'll take us away, take us on that path for five or 10 minutes. And then I'll have to bring us out of that conversation and go to the next question just for the sake of time. So I apologize in advance for how... That might feel at times when we don't quite maybe get to the bottom of every question that get, that gets asked, but we'll do our best to answer as many as we can. And I'm actually going to stop, start, not stop, start with the top of the list. My, my brain tried to combine those two words. We're going to start with the top of the list on the Facebook page, because I think this is just a good one to start with. And Jennifer asks this. She said that she enjoyed the book overall and that she knows realism is not necessarily the focus but that she struggled with some of Hardy's choices for key plot points. So she says Angel's initial abandonment of Tess and his trip to Brazil, her refusal to ask for help from his, from his parents, her final decision to remove Alec. I like the, the phrasing of that, to remove Alec. Um, are these choices consistent with the characters? Um, and she says, I know he's got a message in mind and wants to have this fatalistic element, but she said she didn't believe, uh, didn't find this pop plot believable in many ways. So, she says, is this a flaw in the novel or with her as a reader? Does the theme slash agenda compromise Hardy's storytelling? Um, and she says that the, particularly the, the abandonment and trip to Brazil, she found the hardest to swallow because of the Victorian setting and the emphasis within that setting on appearances. Karen, I'll just turn to you first on this one. Um, so there's a few questions here. One of them is just the matter of appearances. And then also, is this... Do you think this is a flaw or is this just something that as a reader, she says, is it, is it a flaw in her? I don't know that I would describe it as a flaw if you have a hard time with a plot point, <laughs> but maybe it is something within her more than within the book. No, I think that's a great question. And, and it's a good one to ask about, um, about Tess or really any of Hardy's novels or any Victorian novels. Um, and it's important to remember that realism as a movement didn't come until a you know, really just a couple decades after this, um, in the early, it was, it was a developing at this time and, but into the 20th century. And so if you look at really most Victorian novels, think of Charles Dickens, for example, I mean, there's so much in there that is, is unbelievable from a mm. realistic point of view, uh, this melodramatic or 
comical or sentimental. Um, and so if we, you know, again, I've been on the show a few times and I always end up talking about the development of the novel historically, because that's, you know, what I, what I teach and love. And so, um, so I think in, when we look at the trajectory of the novel, as it was developing, um, realism isn't really a, you know, a legitimate thing to measure a novel by. They're growing more realistic. Mm. But Hardy was criticized um, for being, and, and this novel specifically for being too melodramatic. So, mm. so I would say it's, it's a, it's, it's a good judgment, but it, specifically about, um, about Angel going to Brazil, that actually is one of the more realistic elements, I would say, yeah. because this was a time of of exploration and imperialism and, and you know, yeah. missionaries and entrepreneurs and business people were going off into these other lands. So this was kind of a, a common um, thing, trope in literature, but also something that was really happening in real life. So um, that's a it's a good question. That's my sort of general answer. It's kind of similar time as heart of darkness right i mean when that was written similar decade yeah same same decade and 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 so heart of darkness is obviously more realistic um but it, you know this but the movements are kind of overlapping and so i think hardy is really writing as even though he's rejecting the victorian values he's still writing very much as a victorian and i think his novel reflects a lot of what we find in most victorian novels mm. heidi do you do you feel similar to jennifer when you're reading like does the melodrama i guess we gotta maybe we should have a conversation about whether melodrama is and realism have a can, can coexist maybe that's a different day um do you do you find that to be i don't want to say troubling but just something that kind of like you noticed bothers you or whatever when you're reading the book that just made the experience that took you out of the experience no i i i do agree with jennifer this isn't these aren't just everyday happenings things that just go on every day of 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 life um but <laughs> the melodrama doesn't bother me because i think it's um it's congruent with the emotional tone of the novel it creates the tone mm. and augments it uh and and draws us in, I think, draws me in to the human experience mm. uh, because the emotions are so intense that the plot has to does the kind of does the work of creating that intensity so that we can enter into it. Uh, mm. So it doesn't it doesn't bother me. Um, but I also think that melodrama is uh is only appropriate in the hands of a great craftsman if you're going to use it to create emotional drama. And I think Hardy succeeds, um, but I can also understand why it might feel to a reader like a little bit eye rolling. That's completely fine. <laughs> and and I'll just add too that um, several of the events in the in this novel, and, and I'd have to look it back up, but I think even including like the both the the. Well, the, obviously the rape seduction, you know, forest event was far too common, um, but the murder too. Um, and there was something else I can't remember, but they, they, Hardy did draw from stories that he read about in newspapers. Mm. So they, they weren't necessarily common. They were kind of ripped from the headlines, but they did serve as inspiration for me, even in um, the mayor of Casterbridge, the whole um, wife selling scene that, that occurs at the beginning. That was something that actually did happen and not just once. And so he would take real life events, even if they were, you know, headline um, making stories and write about them. Mm. 
um, you know, because today in the age of the realist fiction, we don't ever have things that could never happen or that are seem melodramatic in our, in our fiction today. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> such as in perhaps where the crawdads sing one of the most popular novels in the last five years. <laughs> um, so, um, here's a question from Zena that I wanted to, to hear from you. I don't think we need to spend too much time on this because you know, it's a bit of a, just an opinion question. Do you think Tess's parents loved her? Zena asks, do you think Hardy places more or less or equal blame on the parents as he does Alec or Angel? Heidi, what do you think? Does, so does, does Tess's, do, do Tess's parents love her? And does Hardy place more or less or equal blame on the parents as he does Alec or Angel? Yeah, I think that he does. And I think that one of the deep tragedies of this novel is that nobody really loved Tess in the sense of charity, right? Being willing to lay down their lives uh, for her and sacrifice their own appetites or desires. Uh, she remains throughout the whole novel um, somebody worthy of love, but does not receive that in a meaningful or healing or formative way from anybody in her life, including her parents. And so I think, Zena, you've put your finger on the one, the pathos of the novel. Um, and, and it's a really important question, I think, to ask and wrestle with as you're reading in community or yelling at your device as we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, do you do you think that Hardy blames puts enough blame on the parents? I think he definitely does. I think really a central theme is kind of the sins of the fathers being visited on the sons and daughters and the generational cycle of of sin or or suffering. Um, and so I think I mean so so part of what he's doing is indicting all of society, but part of society is the families that perpetuate um, these, you know, kinds of sufferings on, on their children, whether it's the, you know, the noble ancestry or the evangelical parents. Um, so I, th I think the parents love their children in kind of an imperfect way um, because that's all they know. And I think that's also part of what Hardy is showing. Um, but I think he is indicting the parents. Well, there's actually another question here about, parents and this one comes from Anastasia and she says this is my second reading of Tess and I was struck by Angel's relationship with his parents is this a parallel to Hardy's own relationship with religion there's a forlorn but tender aspect to how Angel's father loved Angel most of all his sons uh, she was it's just says she'd like some insight into this relationship so I guess there's a there's on the one hand just looking for any insight you have on the relationship, but also perhaps this relationship as a parallel to his to Hardy's relationship with religion. Karen, what do you think about this? I think it's definitely a parallel to his relationship with re religion and the Christianity of his of, of his family and his his culture. Um, and I love how um, she picked up on the tenderness and and one of my favorite portrayals in the novel. And I I think I touched on this before is is um, Reverend Claire, like, like who is an evangelical and Hardy does not like evangelicals or Christians, but yet he still, he's, he has this tenderness for them um, because he had that own bent early in, earlier in his life. And so he doesn't portray um, Reverend, Reverend Claire as, you know, as just a flat out villain or hypocrite. Um, 
he shows him as someone who's loving and caring and, and, and limited like all of the characters are. So I think it's definitely a relationship. Um, I, I don't recall that much in detail about Hardy's parents um, other than that mm. they cared for him and, um, and tried to, you know, that were able to provide more for him than they had themselves. Um, but I think it's definitely a, a parallel of his relationship with, with Christianity and evangelicalism specifically. Do you want to add anything, Heidi? I just think Hardy does such a beautiful job of crafting characters that represent something and yet they're fully human at the same time. And I think we see that very beautifully drawn with Reverend Claire and of representing um, evangelicalism as insufficient to the problems of to, to human suffering and human problems uh, and flawed and yet having and, and yet being well-meaning like he kind of throws that bone at the faith uh, through Reverend Claire which is nice because he doesn't then just villainize hmm. um, something he doesn't believe in so mm-hmm. um, in spite of the fact that he is making a point he's also as a novelist I think compassionate uh, and skilled enough to um, to craft these characters that uh, that have both folly and goodness in them. Mm. Okay, well, for the sake of time, I'm going to move on to um, another question here. We have one um, from Jennifer, and she's asking about, you know, Heidi, you're just kind of touching on this a little bit, asking about the, the criticisms that Hardy had of his society. And she says... Well, Hardy has some valid criticisms of his society. Are there any of these criticisms that you perhaps find unjust, especially in his criticisms of Christianity? Karen, what do you think of this as someone who's kind of studied the book at length, has probably a decent amount of knowledge of the Christianity of the era? Do you think that there is anything in here that Hardy is just, you know, you know, maybe overdoing it a little bit or taking things a little too personally or something? (laughs) No, that, that's a really good question. Um, and I spend so much time when I'm as a reader and a teacher trying to, to meet the author where he is and in that world that I sometimes don't think about the reverse question, which enough, which is, which is, which is good to think about. Um, and so um, that is such a good question. I mean, I do think that um, he, you know, he, he portrays Tess's family, the Derby fields who are poor and uneducated um, and superstitious and having all these children, which was the norm. And I think he portrays them in a little bit more of a, of a, a pretty negative way. And I mean, we wouldn't want to overly romanticize a, a life like that, which is difficult and hard. And, mm-hmm. you know, we thank God for education and, um, and uh, for, you know, getting rid of uh, superstitions like astrology or, well, you know, I don't know if they're completely rid of, but, um, but he's probably a little bit hard on the, the peasant families that he portrays. I think I would say that. Heidi, do you have anything that you, you know, think I was, was a little bit harsh? I was thinking about this question. I saw it on Facebook the other day. And and I was thinking one of the only ways that we know about the 
follies and glories of a society is through the record that's given to us in its fiction, right? Um, and in, in the writings of its day. And so our version of Christianity in our culture is so profoundly different than it was then, then in a sense, I'm kind of relying on Hardy to tell me how it was, right? And so I don't know, right? I don't, I don't know how accurate he gets it, whether he's um, really kind of like nailing some of the problems in the church or whether he's exaggerating them or, or what. Um, mm. And however, I think it is absolutely crystal clear that his bias and his fundamental assumption is that the faith is not real and that there is nothing that any character can do to and it and to defend something that's not real right and so because he's starting from that assumption it shows and any kind of finger pointing he's going to do at the faith is going to be from outside of it, not from within it. Um, and so whatever he gets right or wrong, his bias definitely shows. Um, and, and we don't have to take his word for it, but at the same time, how are we to know we don't have an objective record of what it was like at the time. Um, so it, I, I think we just have to let that be complicated as readers. Mm. Okay, this is a question from Tesha. She she says that she's been thinking through some frustrations she has about the end of the book. Um, and she says, it's true that I'm disappointed about Tessa's characterization by the end, but writing her off completely would be dismissive of the truly great moments she had in the first good chunk of it. The baptism of the baby, the moment she gets up and leaves her parents' house to make a life for herself, all of the amazing psychological exploration, exploration during these times. She says, I think what happens is that things go south the minute Angel Claire comes on the scene. And I don't mean that in the I hate Angel sense. I mean that I think his presence pushes her off stage and he eventually becomes the book's protagonist. Unlovable as he may be, he might just be the best developed character in the whole novel. His hypocrisy makes him interesting and his psychological journey comes full circle in a way that Tess's never does. So I guess my question is this, says Tesha. Do you think Angel outshines Tess as a protagonist? And if so, is this a flaw? Heidi, I'll let you go first on this one because I let Karen go first the last one. So we'll just kind of do some alternating here. I just want to say Tesha is so insightful in her comments. And um, I absolutely agree completely that Angel is the character in the novel who's the most memorable, the most complex, the most well-developed, uh, and the most um, uh, like emotionally divisive in the sense that you're going to have a strong opinion about him. Um, and, and that's likely to create conversation in readers. Um, who are reading in community. Um, I think that to argue that he's the protagonist might be going a step further than I'm willing to take, but I'm going to say for sure that he is the best developed character. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Karen? 
Yeah, I, I completely agree with what you said, Heidi. And I, I might even go a little farther and say maybe Angel is the protagonist because I really do think, I mean, let's be honest, like Angel is Thomas Hardy, right? I mean, in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think he, you know, Hardy understands the character of Angel more hmm. um, and, or, you know, even just being a man more. And I don't think Hardy really understands um what it is like to be someone like Tess, although he does, you know, he does, he does a good he job. Explores of, of it. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. And um, he tries to understand. Yeah. Um, but um, no, I, I think the angel is the most complicated one, the most, um, the one who changes and develops the most and um, you know, and, and whether, why Hardy called it Tess, of the Durbervilles instead of Angel. I mean, that that could say that Tess is supposed to be the central character, but it could also just say, you know, that Tess is sort of a template upon which Hardy examines what it means to be a man like Angel. Hmm. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that Tess is a character that Hardy is, he just is limited, you know, and he, it's, he she's not fully drawn because he ignores her, I don't think. I think he gives it a crack, that's to your point. He just, comes up a little short because he is much it's just he has more insight and experience and what it's like to be an angel than he well <laughs> and what it's like to be like that character named angel than it is to, <laughs> to to be Tess. so it feels like he has a lot of empathy if that's the word for Tess, but he just can't quite get all the way into like her essence because just because of having a limited point of view. So it's see, the question at the end was, is it a flaw? That's a tricky question. Cause I, maybe it's a flaw, but it's, I don't think it's, it's, I think it's just a flaw of limitation more than like a flaw of execution. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's, I don't know that I blame him for not being able to execute it. So cause he's trying something right. pretty profound that maybe he doesn't quite reach all the way for. Do you disagree with that? I do. I, I, so go ahead. So no. we'll disagree. This will be a great, this will okay. be a great point. So what, based on what David was just saying, I just had a thought and I don't think this has come up before, but so, so Hardy is definitely not as skilled as um, Flaubert in portraying Emma Bovary, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mm-hmm. think Flaubert really um, complicates and understands this female character that he invents in a way that Hardy doesn't get with Tess. So that was just a, a thought that came to me. So, I, and I, so, I, again, so you're I saying there say are some law. men who understand women is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's <laughs> at least one Flaubert. Um, and maybe so Wendell Berry yeah, and Hannah Coulter. Whole story. Yeah. 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 Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so is it a, maybe a, yeah. Um, maybe it is a flaw or a weakness. I don't know. <laughs> it's just a limitation, I guess. So yeah. go ahead, Heidi. I think I to- I completely agree, David, that it's a limitation and not intentional, but I still think it's a flaw. I think if you're going to name a book, Tess of the Durbervilles, you got to nail Tess of the Durbervilles. So I, I think that he, I think he falters at the end and I'm not sure why. And, and that has actually made the book more interesting for me to read because then I start ask, asking that question. Why? Like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Is he doing this on purpose? Is he trying to show that suffering is not redemptive? Is he trying to show that suffering is fatalistic and destroys and doesn't actually produce some kind of um, holy result? But at the beginning of the book, he makes the claim that she's growing stronger. And so it's just, I, I found it maybe even a little more interesting to read and think about that 
because he falters on tests. But I still think if you create a great like central character to a story, you got to nail that person. The, the idea of why she calls the book Tess is interesting though, because does that, is it like a red herring for us in terms of how we think about the book? Maybe the flaw is that he called it Tess. And that's, that's the problem. <laughs> well, it's, an, I mean, it, the original title was too late beloved um which is interesting because those are the mm. words that Tess speaks um you know when angel appears too late but it's also really more it's Tess they're Tess's words but they're about angel so mm. you know it was angel was too too late he had this transformation but it was too late mm. um to you know to save Tess and save what they could have had so I don't know interesting yeah Okay, let's move on. There. Okay. Do you had Tess lived longer? This is from Laura. Had Tess lived longer, would she have come to regret the murder of Alec? I mean, this is one of those hypothetical or doing some imagining, but based on what we know about her and where she is at the end of the book, what do you think about this question? It's kind of an interesting way to think about this sort of. In her case, there is no stasis at the end of the book. <laughs> Heidi, what do you think? Well. It's a good, it's actually a pretty good question because if the question behind the question is, was justice done and can she settle into a new life? That's a little bit different from another possibility of the question behind the question, um, which is, does Tess have, like how developed is her conscience if we accept it as a sin, right? So on on Hardy's terms coming from, uh a, a a rejection of of christianity he still has a really strong moral center and is very very careful throughout the novel to argue that angel still maintains a christian ethic even though he's not a christian and so i would think from that that he would think murder is wrong right so then our main character probably will come to regret it i'd like to think she would um, but also but, then maybe justice yeah. is, it's like, the, yeah. So then that comes to the other question of, was it justice? Right. And so it, it, it's a good question. It's more than just a thought experiment. It kind of explores what the novel is trying to explore. So I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I, I don't have a definitive opinion on it right now. Karen. It is a good question. Um, because it doesn't pre so you know it's just if 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 Tess had you know uh, well and actually we could imagine because she, we how much time passed was it weeks or months you know that she was in prison before she was executed it wasn't a long time but we don't get any insight into what she's thinking or feeling right there yeah. right and so I mean it wasn't like they shot her right there at Stonehenge I mean they took her in and she spent some time before her execution and so so Hardy chooses not to. Um, tell us what she, she goes through um, internally before she before justice is done. So that yeah. tells us that he that that that's not important to the point he's trying to make. Right. But I do I do think that 
his story in some ways is about, and I know this is a politically loaded term, but it's older than the current politics. It is about social justice, right? And that's why justice is in quotation mm-hmm. marks because technically justice was served, but Hardy's saying there was a whole sort of unjust system and patterns and society that led to this or contributed to this event happening mm-hmm. that didn't have to happen. So anyway, that's not really answering the question, but it's just interesting that Hardy doesn't tell us what Tess is going, has gone through. It does feel like, should he have, would he have, like, if he gave us Tess's conscience and it shows either she has died, she's Mm -hmm. died at peace or Mm -hmm. she has died tormented by what she has done. It would necessarily cast, the, the book is necessarily casting a judgment on the action in a way that perhaps is too much resolution for what he's trying to accomplish in terms of commenting on the social justice of things. So I, you know, I think the, the lack of her perspective, the lack of, Mm -hmm. you know, getting inside of her, the questions of her conscience and her guilt, sense of guilt, uh, maybe is, would have been a distraction in the end of the book from you. You mentioned he left it up for a reason. And Mm -hmm. that seems like it's part of why, um, like, um, I think we, we would have, we would have been being told essentially how to feel about it from the book's perspective. Right. Um, so there's Which a question. Hardy he- doesn't have a problem doing, right? Correct. Like he tells yeah. us how to feel all the time. So when he doesn't, it's meaningful. Yeah. 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 Okay. Here's another question from, um, let's see. This is from Jen, a different Jen. Uh, it was mentioned on our show several times that Angel didn't really know Tess. That he was in love with her, not as in love, not with her as a person, but with a fantasy version of her. Do you think the same could be said for Tess? She is so devoted, even after Angel reveals he is not the man he claims to be. He propositions her friend after he abandons her. She puts two exclamation points there that I didn't probably read properly. Uh, Even after she knows the truth about that, her love doesn't seem to waver. It seems like she is hanging on dearly to her idea of who she thought he was, not who he is showing himself to be. So on the one hand, uh, is that... Do we agree with her with her take that the same could be said for Tess? And then she says, is this an example of an inversion? Angel finds out Tess is not the virgin he assumed her to be and immediately drops her like a hot potato. While Tess realizes Angel is cruel and self-absorbed, but doubles down in her love for him to a fault, even going so far as accepting the blame for his treatment of her for a really long time, she points out. So, uh, Karen, thoughts on this? Okay, so I think, this is a good question too. I think that Tess um, doesn't really know Angel or love the real Angel, but I think Hardy doesn't realize that. Interesting. Because he's not really. I mean, well, he doesn't really. I think. I think he he's trying to show us. He's clearly showing us that Angel does not know or love Tess. He loves an ideal version of her. Hardy, mm-hmm. I mean, he goes, that's so much of the story. Hardy yeah, he makes a point to tell us that. that. Yeah. Right. And so I think that he's not even really that concerned with whether or not Tess, like, I think that's probably a limitation or a flaw. Like I, I go, and it goes back to other questions we just discussed. Like it's not a preoccupation. Hardy, right. Hardy is really concerned about angel. <laughs> so. Yeah. You're right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, he is named angel. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I think that is exactly, exactly what I, I, that Hardy gives us a pure woman and her in her purity, she never gives up on her man, even when he abuses her, rejects her, abandons her. And that 
Hardy seems in the book to hold up as Tessa's virtue and what actually makes her pure. And Hmm. so, but, but I think exactly what you said, Karen, she, she doesn't know him. She doesn't truly love him. uh, And she doesn't hold him accountable, which is what a loving woman would do for her man. Right. And so that, I, I think you you just put your finger on the vital spot and exactly what makes Tess's characterization a flaw. And just to add, you know, I mean, I think there's sort of an underlying assumption in Hardy's world that he even he doesn't see. I mean, that Tess, this poor peasant girl who is not a virgin, uh, but even though even though so even putting that out of the part picture because Angel doesn't know at that point. I mean, she's just really darn lucky to get a guy like Angel. So it's like not even like, so it's just like, that's all she needs is just to have this good looking angelic guy who's a social superior to her. And why would she question um, who he is or whether? Okay. Yeah. So we're certain though, that Hardy, that Hardy is using the name like Angel earnestly and not ironically. Um, I think there's multiple levels to his name, right? Because we have in scripture, uh, which uh, in spite of the fact that he's not a Christian, he uses scriptural imagery throughout the whole book, right? Um, And he, in in scripture, we have fallen angels Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. much as we have holy angels, right? And so I think that, that, that he is he is definitely using it earnestly, but just with multiple Mm -hmm. interpretations. Yeah. 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 He's not, he's not wanting us to forget the, what can happen to angels. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, Okay. Here's a question from Cindy. Uh, She says, it seems as if Hardy was using the symbols of the horse, dairy cows and the birds to somehow represent women, 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 sorry. Um, what was he trying to do or say with each of these? Uh, Tess stabs Alec in the heart. Is this somehow connected to the symbolism of the horse getting pierced through the heart near the beginning of the story? Is it, then she just says justice question mark. So there's the horse, dairy cows, all these, does it, do you agree that it represents women? What's going on with those? And then the horse getting pierced in the heart, Alec getting pierced in the heart. Is there a connection there? Heidi, you want to go first? They're both yeah. muted, so whenever yeah. I say who goes first, they have to like race we to have take a second. <laughs> um, I I think that it is very insightful. Tess is often like uh, the 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 animals on the farm evoke kind of the same characteristics of Tess, right? And um, because she's tied to the land, as Angel is continually rising further and further into his head, into the clouds, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Tess is continually drawn further and further towards the earth. Um, she's she's associated with animals and with uh, the kind of abundance and, uh, and ever-growing life of plants. Uh, the uh, images that are used of her are very pastoral, like the color green. And she's um, good at the work. Yeah. Like he and she enjoys it. And that's where she's the most beautiful and appealing. Uh, and, and so there's, there's, definitely this kind of like mother earth pagan earth maiden mythology that's associated with with tess and the animals as well um and versus angel who's continually going 
you know, higher and higher and lost in, his head in, and the, lost clouds. in the clouds yeah. and that, that, you know, so that polarization happens within the novel and it's really, really clear and, and on the nose. So I think that that's, that's exactly, I think you're on, onto something there. Do you want to talk about the horse? Yeah, Karen, you, you want to take that? Yeah, one you mentioned that a couple times, and we yeah. kind of didn't pick up on that. Yeah, yeah. As much as we should have. <laughs> yeah, I, I would just want to point out, English professor here, that um, that I wouldn't use the term symbol to describe the relationship between the animals and tests. They aren't they aren't strictly speaking symbols, um, in the way that we would say, you know, in Pilgrim's Progress, like Christian is a symbol of Christian right, more association. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah. right. You, you like, use the right language. Heidi, you talk about, you know, associations, imagery, um, connection, motif, connections, foreshadowing. So the horse, the, the horse being pierced is a foreshadowing as is the, the, the rose thorn pricking Tessa's breast uh, or chin. Um, so there's lots of foreshadowing, lots of um, connecting motifs and images. Um, and so con- connections, there are all different kinds of connections. And so Tessa is definitely connected to the land and, and the birds, you know, that she um, finds and, and puts out of their misery. I mean, that's, um, I mean, maybe we could say that that act is symbolic, but that's different from saying that the birds symbolize Tess. It's a very, very nuanced. Um, but um, yeah, sim- symbol is a very loaded term, and but there are definitely lots of connections there. I mean, I mean, if you think I, I'm not a music person, so I'm always afraid to talk about musical terms. But <laughs> I think I, I'm confident in saying that anyone who knows music and talks about and knows what like a motif is like, it, it's just something to remind you and make a connection. Mm. Um, a musical note, you know, we're supposed to be reminded of something. And so all of these colors, animals, gestures, um, foreshadowings, they are all connected um, and supposed to remind us of, of or point to the main events. One of the things that I think students always like, especially when you teach high school students, they're always like trying to figure out like what the puzzle is. And I sometimes have to be like, authors are rarely, maybe excluding some of the postmodernists, rarely trying actively to confuse you. Usually what they're trying to do is create dramatic sinew. And so there's a difference between like something being like a puzzle where they're trying to make you take everything apart as opposed to the idea of they're trying to like give flesh or embody some kind of like dramatic tension and all those, those images and those colors and all those little scenes, when you put them all together, they create, I call it dramatic sinew because I just think it's a funny phrase, but it's just like, there's a, there's a like dramatic, there's like a body. If you think about it in terms of wine or something like that, there's a dramatic body that all those things make up that help create the experience, the dramatic experience of reading a book. Um, do you agree with that, Karen, or should I stop talking, thinking about things that way? <laughs> no, no. I mean, it, it yeah, it's, uh, it, I mean, good writers do weave these connections and, yeah. and, and use imagery um, and often consciously and deliberately, but often when they're really good, it's, you know, kind of like, by instinct and yeah, don't right, necessarily yeah. know what the process is. It's but, like an athlete but, when they do things instead, they don't think about every great move they make. Oftentimes they're responding to like something that comes in front of them. 
Right, right. And that doesn't mean the great move isn't really important. It is. And right. we should notice it and we should talk about it and we should comment yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, like, Whoa. But it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's not like they're putting pieces of a puzzle together and saying, you know, find, find the, un, unlock the mystery. So no, yeah. you're exactly right. I mean, right. sometimes people do that, but like you probably could just ignore those people who want you to think that they're clever. <laughs> Well, like Ag- Agatha Christie obviously does that. You go back and you reread it and you're like, oh, all the things were there. And that's a different kind of process than yeah, right. that's who's true. trying to embody, you know, what real life is by use it, by paying attention to important details, which is what we're all trying to do in real life, right? Yeah. To, you know, pay attention to important details. And when we miss them, we're like, oh, how did I not pay attention yeah. to that detail about this person or this relationship, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Heidi, do you want to add anything before we go to the next one? No, other than I just really like the phrase dramatic sinews. Like, I like it a lot. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, okay, so uh, Karen, Brandon has a question for you. Um, and ba- there is the phrase, defend yourself in this question. this question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, okay. He says, Karen, both on this series and the Jane Eyre series, you stated that the English novel peaked or at least plateaued during this period. He says, I think you said those two novels represent the height and that there was no improvement in the form since their publication. <laughs> Defend yourself. But then he says, in all seriousness, why? What did they lack yeah, yeah. before these examples? What would you say to someone who argues that later works surpassed them? Did the English novel, English language novel peak or was it just the English-British novel to then be supplanted by Americans? So there's a couple of different questions in here. Yeah. He's being a little tongue-in-cheek, but also yeah. defend yourself. Yeah, yeah. no, it's funny. I did not see this question, but I, find, I, I don't know what I was writing recently. Um, but I think about this all the time because peak or plat peak is not really the word I want. Um, mm. because yeah, you know, the English novel developed and grew and improved through the 18th into the 19th century. Um, and I, but I do think, so maybe not so much as an art form, but, um, maybe just as sort of a cultural artifact. Mm. Um, hmm. well, okay. Maybe- so what's the distinction? Um, because I do think great novels are still being written in, in, in an artistic way, but we don't read novels as well. Present company accepted. Okay. Right. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> the novel doesn't hold the kind of place in our culture as it did. And I would say in the 19th and early 20th right. century, like, right. so, so in that, so, um, in that, when I'm saying peaked, I think I mean more that than in terms of the, um, artistic you know, possibilities and, and mm. fruition. Um, so I, so plateau probably is the better word. Um, but I don't mean plateau like in a negative way. I just mean like the novel developed in the 18th century. It grew into this great art form in the 19th century and it's still a great art form and it's, you know, yeah. it's changing. Um, but it just took a while and, I, and, um, yeah, how we measure is, you know, is, is the great American, what is, I don't know what the great American novel is, but is it better than, you know, a a British novel from the 19th century? I I don't know. Um, So no, that's, that's a really good question. I'm not sure I defended myself well, but I hope I explained kind of what I, it it just developed and got to the height that I think it currently remains in the 19th century. Mm. Um, But I, but I would also argue, I mean, I'm, I, I love realism. So I do think that, you know, anything that's more realistic is, is better for us today because, because we need that Mm. um, whether we recognize it or not. 
I, I think all the time about like the lifespans of art forms. So if you think about Shakespeare in terms of when he came along in the lifespan of the form of like the play, he's thousands of years after like Sophocles. Um, I don't know the exact number, but he's a long time after Sophocles. And so this is an art form that's been around for a super long time by the time we get Shakespeare. I mean, obviously he's also responding to all kinds of different um, ways of telling stories, also like the epics and histories and all that. And then you look at like the novel and by the time, I mean, even in 2022, this is a young art form that developed very aggressively and quickly in the 18th and 19th centuries. And now we're kind of like in this phase that has been influenced by a whole slew of um, cultural and philosophical and religious movements over the last hundred years that have really dramatically altered the way we think about the world. And then you look at like movies and we're a hundred and roughly a hundred and let's say a hundred years into movies where people, you could hear a person talk. And so you think about movies from the seventies and eighties and how different they are to movies now, where you sit down and you watch a movie that was made in 1955 or 1975. And you're like, wow, that was a movie from the seventies. You can just look at it and tell within five minutes. And so the way these art forms evolve and change is just fascinating to me. And they should be different from generation to generation. And when you read a novel now, like it feels different than a novel that was written in the fifties, which felt different than a novel written in 1905, which felt different than like Jane Austen. And to me, that's, I don't know. That's, that's, that's what's, whether they're peaked or plateaued, like being able to differentiate and think about those differentiations is fascinating because we get to be, we're like, we get our moment is part of that, the continuum of all these art forms. And we as readers and people who, even if we're, if we're trying to write or comment on or have a podcast about them, we get to be part of that ongoing conversation, even if it's just a small part. I find that fascinating. So that was just me uh, ineloquently, you know, saying nonsense for a few minutes. But I just find the whole thing fascinating. No, and the example of movies is really, really good because that's a completely different technology and form and medium, and it is still developing and improving. And I guess I would just say, if you go back and you read like the, if you read the the pre-novels of the late 17th and early 18th century and the early novels, they're so rough because they are, they are employing like, you know, they're employing allegory, travel literature, um, journalism, like early, you know, Daniel Defoe, he was a journalist. So his works read like journalism more than, and then we get at some point in the 19th century, we get to this thing called a novel, which really hasn't varied much. I mean, we, you know, we have sort of a, a believable authorial or narrative voice, or even if that takes a form of multiple perspectives. So in a lot of ways, mm. it hasn't really changed. It's yeah. just, so um, that's what I'm talking about. Um, if you compare anything from the mid 19th century, like say J you know, Charlotte Bronte, Jane Eyre on, all, they all are much more similar to one another than they are to Daniel Defoe and Samuel Richardson. Yeah, oh, that's true, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. And that, I will, that is my defense, Brandon. <laughs> that, okay, that makes, I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you've got outliers, you've got the James Joyce and outliers. Like, even then he wrote some novels that feel, they could, they kind of feel like Jane Eyre anyway, so. Right, right. <clears throat> How did you want yeah. to add to this? And, and yeah, yeah. And you got, you know, so Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, they're like, yes, they did something different, but they, as you said, they're outliers, right? They're, we're not repeating. Yeah, we're, yeah, and people who do get laughed off the, 
you know, laugh to the cultural stocks. Um, Heidi, do you want to add anything? I just, I just think that the novel as a form was inevitable. Uh, and uh, because it's, it's so versatile and it, it's, and I, I find it very, very interesting that the novel developed at the same, around the same time and influenced, deeply influenced the cultural understanding of this, of the self as an individual. Um, mm. And because a novel is something that I can read myself and that Karen can read and herself. And, and so it's, a, it's, it's individual and you kind of have to work to make a novel communal. That's why we do close reads, right? Um, Unlike versus, a play. Exactly. Exactly. Versus theater or epic, which is inherently communal as a form. Um, and, and so as the world changed, the literary genres changed, developed, and then they influence each other. And you get something like Jane Eyre, which is a novel profoundly about the self, not just the self, but a female self. Right. Um, and, and that is, I, I, I find that really wonderful and and beautiful to be able to trace these trends in culture and see how they um, overlap each other and influence each other. Um, and and we're still there as we're still there in Western culture, right? The 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 elevation of the self. So of course the form is alive and well. And that I would just add, and this is an air, you know, not something I've studied much, so I don't know much what I'm talking about, but the little bit I know, I think this is correct, is so fan fiction would be kind of the postmodern, you know, if the novel is expression of the modern self, then fan fiction, which is communal and adaptive and, um, mm-hmm. and you know, not original, um, intentionally not original, but borrowing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of, that, to me, that's the epitome of what it means to be like postmodern in terms oh, of. Oh, interesting. So, I really like that. Karen. You're gonna, I'm this gonna needs to be in that. a book, Karen. You need a chapter on this in a book. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'll think about that. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, when you, cause you don't have any other uh, ideas of things to, to write about. So Heidi, can someone be critical of the Enlightenment and also like novels then? I hope so, because that is me. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, um, here's a question from Darcy. Doesn't Angel say shortly after Tess's revelation to him that it would be better if Alec were dead? He would be more okay with her in the situation if her first husband were dead. Uh, that's immediately why I assume that she killed Alec at the end. It seems so out of character for her otherwise. So somebody went through and found that there is a part where he says, how can we live together while that man lives? He being your husband in nature, if not I, if he were dead, it might be different. So uh, Jennifer pointed out that was on page 411. So let's, let's go with this train of thought here. And I want to talk about where she says it seems so out of character for her otherwise. Do we agree with that? Like, does she do this because of that comment from Alec? Angel, sorry. And then is it out of character for her to do what she did? Karen, what do you think? Actually, I think that is brilliant and I've never noticed it before. Um, I mean, I think it's like, I think that that is like foreshadowing at the very least. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not, obviously Hardy hasn't told us that Tess is thinking this when she does it. Yeah. I've planted that seed. And I, I, yeah. And I think, um, I don't think we got to this when we did that section, but I've always pointed to that passage um, 
where they have that conversation to point out, because I was always distracted by this, the powerful part of that, where when, when Angel asks, is he still living? And Tess says, no, he's dead because she, she, she means the child and Angel means the man. Tess means the child. And it's just Mm. such a dramatic contrast between who, what they're thinking about. Tess is still like, she's still thinking about that child she lost Mm. because she loves that child. And Mm -hmm. that's where, that's where her, her, you know, what's most traumatized her is the death of the child and angels not even thinking about that. She's just thinking, well, do I have, you know, are, are we going to be, you know, committing adultery in the traditional sense, right? Because not because she was married to him, but I think he's carrying that traditional Christian belief um, or have a competitor out there. And so to me, that passage is really, really important because of that contrast. But here's another reason why it's important is because, yeah, I think that seed was planted there. And I, I love that observation. I was really hoping for a duel in that moment. We needed a good angel-Alec duel. Didn't didn't get it, but, you know. Heidi, what are you going to say? I, I'm not sure. I think it's entirely out of character for Tess to have done this thing. Um, she's Yes, she has a very strong code of morality, uh, but she's been forced to violate that code so often. Um, And she has agreed to become a mistress. And at that point, for someone with with who's characterized by kind of a very uh, a simplicity of outlook and such a wholehearted engagement in what's in front of her, it seems to me consistent, psychologically feasible that she would just abandon herself then to wickedness in her perception, right? She's never going to blame anybody else. She's always going to take it on herself. It was me. I'm, I'm shameful. I'm bad. I'm broken and tainted and all these things. And now I'm the mistress of Alec, um, which frankly she did out of the purest of motives, Um, and, and then, so, so to be pushed kind of to the edge psychologically and then to act out by stabbing him, knowing that exactly what, what she says that, that then he'll be gone and maybe she can be with angel. Maybe this will solve all of her problems. Plus she's such an emotionally fragile, um, in, in, or in such an emotionally fragile state. Mm. Um, and in like a, in psychological trauma. And so I, I think it actually works for her character. Um, not because she's a morally bad person. She's not, that's the whole point, but because she's such a fragile person and so easily led. Um, and, and, and that is both her glory and her destruction. And I think that's consistent in that moment when she stabs Alec. Yeah, I really want to echo this too, because I think this is important. So, so I, yes. Um, and, and this, you know, again, rip speaking of rip from the headlines, I mean, this does happen like an abused woman or battered woman suddenly, you know, just, you know, commits murder because, because she has been so helpless all along. I mean, that's not something that is, um, is unbelievable. We we've seen that happen. And I think Tess was in a similar situation, helpless and, and battered emotionally, as well as physically and sexually. Um, and she lashes out, um, that's psychologically, uh, realistic, I think. And 
within the, the the story that Hardy has constructed constructed consistent with her character. So I just I really want to stand up for that point of view. <laughs> the phrase out of character is always interesting to me when it comes to a narrative, because most actions that a character takes, like major actions, not like I don't know, going to the grocery store, but like major actions that a character takes are either you have been set up the whole time to believe that the only thing the character can do is do the thing that happens next or the the you have been given an action that is out of character in the sense that you wouldn't normally think they're going to do it but that has been earned because of everything that leads up to it so you could say well we've got this character who in her like most essential essence or the essence at the beginning of the book maybe it would seem strange for her to do that but what's more interesting to me is not whether it's out of character, but whether the action has been earned by the action, by the action of the character has been earned by the action of the novel proceeding up to that point. And I think that is to what you both are saying. We have, let me, let me put it this way in the most like strained way I can think of. She has earned the right to do what she does there dramatically. <laughs> um, the book has earned the right for her to do that because it's been, set up that way would the character the girl at the beginning of the book have done that maybe not but that's kind of the point of the story that's the whole we've point, gotten right. to the point where the book has earned the right to have her do that uh dramatically it's not a question of justice but you know it makes sense that it makes sense that that would happen um and that's kind of the point of like a character arc right they do characters usually do the thing that they're forced to do because of who they are, or they do the thing that you would not have thought they were going to do at the beginning because of what has happened to them. Um, so anyway, uh, end stop. <laughs> um, let's do, uh, one more question here. And this is from Jamie. Okay. <clears throat> she says, how would the story have been different if Tess had been able to differentiate between the faulty Victorian moral code and true biblical morality. The conflation of those two was my biggest frustration with Hardy. Parentheses. Was I the only one throwing ap apologetic arguments at him throughout the whole book? End uh, parentheses. Uh, I, would, uh, I would love to hear a discussion, says Jamie, about how a strong personal conviction would have given Tess a solid mooring and enabled her to make hard but healthy choices. Kept thinking of Jane Eyre, particularly in the excruciating chapters where Tess is resisting her conscientious, uh, her, her sense that she should tell Angel. Um, so I, let's just kind of focus on that beginning there. How would the story have been different if Tess had been able to differentiate between the Victorian moral code and true biblical morality? And I'm just curious what you think about this, because is this a, is the question, how would Tess have been able to differentiate or how would it have been different if, um, Hardy had been able to differentiate? I'm wondering if there's a difference there and we can't ask Jamie what she means, but I'm wondering if you think that, that there's a difference there and maybe she means one of those two things, if not as opposed to both of those two things, Heidi, what do you think? And then we'll let Karen go, go last. I think that if Tess was able to differentiate Victorian morality from a, a, a true ontological Christian ethic, then she wouldn't be Tess. Um, Tess as a character is formed by the 
by her surroundings, right? She's, she is characterized by a desire to be good uh, and to do good, a true, true, like true, pure heart. She is pure of heart throughout the whole novel, even when she's committing murder, even when she's the mistress of of the man who raped her, like she is pure of heart. Um, but she is not clear of mind. And, and that is necessary for being able to distinguish cultural patterns from true faith. Um, and, and, and so I think the story would be different because we'd have a completely different protagonist. Um, and, and, and I think the distinction between her pure heart and her clear mind is, is, is where Hardy is dwelling there. And that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Christianity per se, as much as it does the psychology of the character. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with Heidi. She'd be a different character. Um, I'll, but I'll, I'll, I'll play with the answer. I, well, first I'll say, obviously, if Hardy saw the difference, he would have written entirely different works. That was his pro- whole problem. He didn't see the hit difference. The person who really should have seen the difference is Angel, because he had the Christian training and background. Um, so he should have, and the education, he should have known the difference, and he didn't. And that's part of Hardy's point. But if a, but I will take the question at its face value, and I will say, if Tess had known the difference, if she had, she would have felt no guilt or shame for what had happened to her. Now, this seems impossible to imagine because we know that there are too many situations today that happen mm-hmm. similar to this. And we know that even young women or women of any age who theoretically should know different still carry the burden of guilt and shame. Um, And that's why this novel is so important, not only Mm. in history, but in our time. Mm. Um, And it's why I chose it for this series and why I'm so glad that we are discussing it because that is what we, that is the knowledge as Christians, we really need to bring home is to know the difference between false guilt and false shame and the real Mm. thing. Mm. I mean, that's, (laughs) that seems like a pretty, um, Good place to end our our conversation on this book, especially with that little bit about why you chose it for this series. Um, Heidi, I'm going to give Karen just one more chance to have a last word, I suppose, um, before we go. Well, Heidi, do you want to add anything before we give Karen the last word? I actually do. And I want to, I think that was really beautiful, Karen, because it's, it's an invitation to see the novel, even when Hardy fails, I think, or falters with, with Tess as his central character when we want more for her. Right. Um, and I, I think that that, what you just said is a clarion call and invitation for us to want more for ourselves and the women in our lives. Right. And, and to fight for that and to believe in that and, and to see that even in a novel like this, that seems to name the trauma without providing a meaningful solution that we don't have to see the world like Hardy does. And, and, and we can then with our moral imagination, right. With our, with our true Christian ethic, with our deep faith, uh, we can fill in that gap. Um, and, 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 and let the novel then work in us in spite of how Hardy might fail. 
um, or, or might not give us the ending that we wanted to Failed might be even too strong of a word. Um, and, and that is, that's really important. And, and that's part of, that's part of being a close reader. Right. So I just want to agree with everything that you just said and thank you for it. All right, Karen, we'll give you the last word then before we, before we wrap up. And again, thank you for joining us for this series and, you know, hopefully we'll be able to do another book in the future, you know, maybe even one from, from your series. Um, so yeah, your, your turn, final thoughts on Tess and uh, this, and the series. Well, thank you for that. And that invitation, I would love to do that. And now I feel a lot of pressure to say something um, you know, <laughs> on, a, on a closing note, this deep and profound, I guess I just want to say, um, you know, just, I'm just so encouraged by this community that is so willing to read the works of, of people outside our, you know, our, our circle and our worldview and our belief system, because we do have so much that we can learn from them. And I still get questions sometimes, even in my, my email, I have one today about, about exposing ourselves to ungodly, you know, worldviews or language or whatever. And, um, but this is why we do this um, because we don't abandon our beliefs when we read books like like this, we actually can strengthen them because we open ourselves up to um, things that we might not see without the the eyes from those outside. And, and that's what I love about this novel so much. So thanks for um, journeying through it with me. Well, thank you so much for being a part of the, the community. You know, even when we're not doing books that that you're all where you're on the show every now and then you're commenting. So we're uh, we're just we're honored to have you on and have you as a as a special guest. Um, uh, starting next week, we're going to be diving into um, A Month in the Country, which is one of my favorite books. It's very it's not a very long novel. So we'll do the first half, uh, the first episode, and the second episode, we'll do the second half. Weird how that works. And then we'll do the Q&A after that. Um, so Tim will be back for that. Um, so we'll start that uh, next week. Um, also, here at the end of this episode, I just want to shout out our our editor, Logan he and his wife have a new baby. And by the time you hear this, you may have already seen pictures or something like that. Maybe seen an announcement on social media, but we just wanted to say uh, congratulations to them. And Logan, thanks for everything you do to make this show, uh, make this show possible and make us sound a lot better than we probably do based on our own ability to set up technology. <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. And congratulations to, to Logan and, and his wife. Okay, well with that, for Heidi White, for Karen Swallow Prime, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.